Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Very happy to be with you again, and thank you for tuning in with us. It's our privilege here as a panel to talk about uh, subjects and topics in the Bible which are very relevant even for the time we live in. And today we are uh, going to look into chapter 7, very interesting uh, chapter in uh, Daniel. And we can uh, look at this in parallel with some other chapters of the Bible, particularly chapter 2, which we already did some studies on. But before we going into the study today, I would like to just welcome our panel. And we have a full house here, which is really good. And we have um, a new member of the panel, uh, which I would like to introduce to you. And um, Jan, thank you very much for uh, coming along and joining us. Pleasure to be with you. And I enjoy this discussion here. And Helen, also thank you for uh, being part of this. Thank you, Nick. Feeling slightly outnumbered with all the gentlemen, but it is also a privilege to be here. Thank you. Very good. Len, thank you for uh, being part of this also. Yes, hello, listeners, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy today's Bible study. It's a very special one. Mm. Will, thank you very much for uh, being part of this discussion. Thank you. It's good to be here. And Ken, you took on board uh, for this time uh, to facilitate uh, the discussion today and um, thank you for putting together all uh, all the things necessary for uh, this uh, uh, Bible study. I would like to just uh, hand the microphone right to you now. Thank you, Nick, and it's a pleasure to be here as always. Today, listeners, our study is Stormy Sea to Clouds of Heaven, the story of Daniel 7. The vision of Daniel 7, our topic for this day, parallels the dream in Daniel 2, but Daniel 7 expands on what was revealed in Daniel 2. First, the vision occurs at night and portrays the sea agitated by four winds. Darkness, water evoke creation, but here creation appears to be somehow distorted or under attack. Second, The animals in the vision are unclean and hybrid, which represents a violation of the created order. Third, the animals are portrayed as exerting dominion. Thus, it appears that the dominion God gave to Adam in the garden has been upsurred by these powers. Fourth, with the coming of the Son of Man, God's dominion is restored to those to whom it properly belongs. What Adam lost in the garden... The Son of Man recovers in the heavenly judgment. The above description gives a panoramic view of the biblical imagery that runs in the background of this highly symbolic vision. Fortunately, some of the crucial details of the vision are explained by the angel so we can understand the main contours of this amazing prophecy. But before we get into it, I'm going to ask Len to open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, What a privilege it is to have your word so freely available to us. And today we pray, Lord, that as a panel that you will use us to help explain this difficult chapter so that the listeners might understand it. We pray that the Holy Spirit will be here with us as we present and also with the listeners as they listen. Might this be a profitable and helpful study for every one of us. We ask these things and give our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Len. We're going to start off, as I said, uh, in looking at Daniel 7. 
And one of the things we're looking at is vision of the four beasts. Panel, why does God use animals to represent earthly powers? Is it such an unusual thing? I mean, we have the Adelaide crows, we have the wallabies, we have <laughs> the tigers and the, the rabbitos. That's right. There is certain characteristics of certain animals which relate to human behaviour and to certain other things. And so it's not an unusual thing in this day and age to have an animal, a beast, as a representative of a group or a team or of something. It identifies easily the countries that you're dealing with. And I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, for example, every time I was buying dates, I'd see Lion of Babylon on the dates. And, uh, you know, a lion we relate to, to Babylon. So, yeah, it just makes it a little easier. Yeah. I also think that it's interesting to, as you mentioned, that uh, pa- chapter 7 is parallel to chapter 2. And, uh, and it's interesting to see that God is using different language uh, when he's presenting the message to the uh, heathen king, he's using this image of statue. And when he's communicating this same message to the prophet, God is using animal language, which, uh, which is very interesting because we can say that this uh, uh, language of chapter 2 is representing this outward uh, appearance, majesty, splendid, while this... Chapter 7 language of animals is, is more reflecting on this beastly nature of, of this power, uh, which are not friendly towards people of God. And that's interesting to see this parallel. And also I'd like to mention that, um, you know, in humanity, we are always, um, you know, trying to find something to, to identify us and to even distinct us from one nation to the other and God is speaking through his word even though Daniel and Revelation many people will think that these are uh, enclosed books but God still talks in our own tongue if you like for us to understand and you'll see that all these powers we're, uh, we're, we talked about this you know, Babylon, Medo-Persia and so on and so forth they choose some of these animals to represent their uh, reign. Now, we may see that something come in place, something totally new, when we'll get to one of the beasts there, which um, not necessarily people would like to really uh, have that as a representation for them, but the importance of the characteristic of that beast to apply for the time that power is exercising. Also, I think it's necessary to to be aware that in the tradition of the Old Testament, the beasts were used to describe God's judgment on Israel. And, for example, in the book of Hosea, chapter 13, I'm quoting, I will come upon them like a lion, like a leopard, and I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed on, the, on her caps, and I will tear open their chests. There I also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. So it's interesting that this same imagery of wild animal are used as a judgment towards Israel. And it's interesting that Daniel is taking this perspective, but it's applying not 
to Israel, but to the whole world. Very interesting. The image of, am- of animals right throughout Scripture is very interesting. I mean, the devil is uh, Satan, has been compared to a dragon. And uh, when we speak of Jesus, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, that invokes all sorts of imagery mm. and uh, understanding. Leon, you have uh, something to read for us? To introduce the um, chapter 7 of Daniel, I'll read that. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Now another one in Daniel chapter 8, which we'll come to next week. These were visions in dreams given specifically to Daniel not to the king, and so on. God had something important to say through his prophet Daniel, and he gave him the vision, and later on he gave him the interpretation of the vision. So this is an important issue. If God gave Daniel these visions about world history... Panel, what is the uh, the difference between this vision in Daniel chapter 7 and this previous vision in chapter 2? Well, probably we already said this, that this, this is parallel. So it represents the same concept, just different vocabulary. And I think that it's, it's helpful to, to see the parallel because we can use the same methodology of interpretation which we are using to understand chapter 2 when we are discussing chapter 7. Uh, so we don't need to uh, guess or, or speculate. We can just take the methodology from chapter 2 and apply in chapter 7 because it relates to the same uh, sequence, paradigm. Lynn, I see it this way, apart from what uh, Jan was saying. It approaches the same subject from a different angle. It adds to the meaning. In chapter 2, the king had the vision of world empires as parts of a man and different metals. Here today, we have a similar vision, a parallel if you like, but it has other meaning. There are animals or beasts, as some Bibles give the term, which, um, which have certain characteristics which point to these particular empires and later on we we're introduced to something new that came out of the fourth empire the roman empire helen yeah i look at it the point of view that daniel 2 was really to my way of thinking was dealing with the political side you know of these great powers where daniel 7 although that still comes into it there is an added dimension if you like there is a religious side to it or a moral side to it as well But Helen, I I think it's important to understand this political context of uh, Daniel chapter 7. Oh, absolutely. Uh, The book of Daniel is a very political book. Mm. It's a lot of politics. Just imagine this Daniel laying on his bed. He's a very fine politician. Mind you, he is spending all his life in politics. And the situation in the Babylon is not very stable. We have some extra-biblical sources which tell uh, tells us what's going on when Belshazzar is the king of uh, Babylon. Daniel 7.1 is telling when Belshazzar was in the first year. We, we know something what happened before. 
The king was the Nabonidus. And the Nabonidus was not very popular king in Babylon. Uh, actually, the priest, there was a big opposition in the religious world against uh, uh, Nabonidus. And uh, uh, aristocracy uh, was not happy. Uh, mind you, probably you are not familiar with that, but Nabonidus was a ref religious reformer. You know, we can only imagine what happened in the country when a king is coming and bringing a new religion. Because the main religion was the Marduk religion in Babylon. And uh, Nabonidus is bringing a god uh, moon, sin. So uh, he's neglecting this Babylonian habit of New Year. For people in those days, a New Year celebration, a New Year festivals were important because they believe that when you start a New Year, you protect the cosmos from chaos. And we can see that Nabonidus is neglecting that. He's not involved in that. So there is no support for him in Babylon. What he's doing, and we have these interesting documents called a verse account of Nabonidus, which we, uh, which we are told that he is taking Belshazzar as corregent, and he's leaving uh, Babylon for 10 years in turmoil. Now, Daniel is in Babylon, laying in his room on the bed, and as a politician, he knows what's going on. There is instability in country. There is a, there is a conflict. There is a different religion, different religious aspect. So in this context, he got this vision about those animals. So it helps us to a little bit understand the situation, uh, political situation, um, religious situation of chapter 7. I was just going to add, you know, Jan, what you were saying is that his life was political. I actually want to stress again that his life was in the political arena, yes, but his life was dedicated to God. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, I believe some of this religiosity, if you like, um, needs to come through as well. And well, as I said before, it was political, yes, and so was 2 and 7. But in 7, we see a slightly more that comes in. Yeah. And also, what I was going to say um, is that uh, you see an amalgamation of things here. You know, things are just uh, coming from different angles, but actually with the purpose of taking us in the same direction to understand the sovereignty of God. Amen. In the context of all the political issues and all the situation which... Uh, happened at that time, but uh, Daniel visions and even this uh, chapter 7 is not referring only on his time, but also for uh, for the time we live in. Absolutely. Nick, and because I think that this lesson and this study of chapter 7 is posing the question, how do you deal with the troubling events mm -hmm. and, and crisis taking place in our world today? Mm -hmm. And the life of Daniel is a beautiful example. He wasn't neutral. He was concerned. The Bible is saying that, that his face was like pale and, and he was sick and he was really uh, caring for the prosperity of his present country, Babylon. Mm. Even he was not a Babylonian by birth. And, and just, uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Jan, for that. Uh, I was going to just finish uh, my observation also in terms of uh, uh, why is God using 
uh, parallels, and particularly the chapter 2, chapter 7 here, I just very quickly want to share with you my own experience when I uh, arrived here in this country, not able to speak one word in English, and uh, be, being very hard to, uh, to uh, make myself understood. And you know, sometimes I use so many different ways of telling the same thing that my uh, counterpart, you know, may understand what I'm going to say. Now, God knows from the beginning what's happening, what's going on, but we have our, we have our own mind as human beings, you know, and we try to interpret things in our own um, understanding. But God is still coming from various, from various angles to still bring us on the same direction. What's the ultimate call and goal for humanity? It's salvation. And we lost this. And because we lost this, we, we, we've been trapped in all the things which the enemy, Satan, exposed, you know, in, in through the, all these empires and to whatever happened today. But we need to know that the only escape, if you like, is with God and to know God through, this, uh, through these studies. I believe that repetition in the Bible shows us that, and, and it is norm, normally when you see repetition in the Bible, it is enlarged. You with me with that one? Uh, there is more added to it, and to me, that that tells me there is something important God wants us to know. Right. I just want to add something here, listeners, at this point, because it will come up later on. The sea, by the way, in Scripture, stands for the peoples of the earth, Isaiah 17 and verse 5, and Revelation 17 and verse 15. The great sea Daniel saw was the Mediterranean, the centre of the prophetic earth. This is where not otherwise indicated the nations with which prophecy has to do chiefly are those that border on that sea or whose political affiliations are closely related to them. Well, we're going to look at the four base. Would you like to just start off with the first one? Yes, let's have a look at the visions as the vision as such. Daniel chapter 7 from verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night. Behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it after this i saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong it had great iron teeth it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were 
plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Thank you, Jan. That's the that's the big picture. Okay, those four um, four animals, uh, and it's interesting to see the proportions. I did. I I, I don't know if you realize it's just one single verse for uh, those first three, but then it's a quite a big passage describing the fourth one. So it tells us that the interest of the author of this text was mainly focusing on. Uh, on this fourth one. So what we have here, the whole um, story starts in Babylon, similar to chapter 2, where we see this uh, lion with wings, very well attested in uh, archaeology, uh, represents uh, Babylon. It's interesting also for me to see that this lion at the end stand on, on the two, on two legs. Uh, so it's, it's interesting because of the position is interesting. In the case of the second uh, beast, the bear, the bear is laying on the side. So <coughs> it's interesting to, uh, uh, to see the, the proportion of the attention, uh, ascribed to, uh, to each of those animals and, uh, and also this interpretation. We, we have this uh, ocean representing nations, turmoils. We have the winds. Uh, which represent these different uh, events which, which stir people representing by the ocean. Or we have these uh, animals representing the kingdoms. So Babylon represent, is represented by mm, a lion. No. Uh, uh, the second beast is represented by the bear. And it's interesting with those laying on the one side because one portion of this uh, empire was probably stronger than the other. The Persian side was stronger. And some historians are saying us that those uh, three ribs represent the, the Babylon uh, and other Middle East kingdoms like Lydia and Egypt. So we can see the political activities of, of the second beast, uh, which is pictured uh, here. Uh, so this particular beast, the bear, uh, the three ribs in its mouth, they actually took over three provinces. And uh, we have this in history that took over Egypt, Lydia, Asia Minor. This event panel actually happened? Yeah, history confirms the prophecy or the, the dream, which was a prophecy. History confirms all these things. So... It's not like we're uh, flying a kite and we're hoping it's going to land somewhere, which we wouldn't know where. No, it is, it's confirmed by history. And that's the good thing about it. helps us to understand that the Bible is not just dreamed up by some, somebody having a dream. It's true. It's given by God. And, and, and also in the Bible, you know, you have uh, two or three repeating angles to confirm the certainty of the situation. And in this case, uh, just simply, if you look first on Daniel 2 and you have the image and it's uh, composed by generally by those four uh, sections of the image, you know, the head and the chest and the, uh, the rest of it. And you have four beasts here, which again represents the same uh, mm -hmm. imagery uh, but with, as was mentioned here already, with a bit more details coming even a bit more explicit, if you like, about what history confirms about these empires. 
We have to be careful when we are taking this little nitty-gritty of, of the vision and trying to make a very solid and uh, um, uh, quite clear um, uh, explanation. Well, what comes from, uh, from this text to me is that these power are devouring. And when we look at this false beast, the beast is characterized by devouring. This uh, Medo-Persia is devouring. It's what happened with those uh, countries which took over. They were, it wasn't a peaceful mission. It was always uh, a battle and, and uh, 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 taking, killing, taking to captivity. So uh, this is uh, uh, typical for, uh, for imperial activity of this power and showing us their greedy nature. Helen? Not only does it show us their greedy nature, Jan, I believe the bigger picture is that God is sovereign. Mm. You know, for me, Daniel is very important to me because it what convinced me that there is a God who knows the end from the beginning. And history has proven it. It's been accurate, completely accurate. And that gave me enough trust in, in this God to believe that if it's accurate to that point, it will be accurate all the way through. We can trust the Bible. We can trust God. We can trust his promises. Len, you're going to tell us about the uh, leopard? All right. Well, we've been talking about some of these beasts. The first was the lion, which represented Babylon, and the second was the lopsided bear, which represented Medo-Persia. And we come to verse 6, which Will read previously. I'll read it again. Daniel says, After that I looked, and there was before me another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Now, I've studied English history and a little bit of world history, and this represents the kingdom of Greece. Interesting that the leopard, which is a hunter, it's a carnivore, it has four wings. Well, I think what else has four wings? Well, dragonfly has four wings. And if you've ever watched a dragonfly fly, it's very quick and very agile. And these four wings that Daniel sees on the back of the leopard really is talking about the swiftness of the conquering ability of the Greeks during that time. Now, Greece is basically not a major world power these days, but it was then, and the leader was Alexander the Great. And the conquests were so quick over a period of four years, he'd conquered all the surrounding nations. And like I said before, history confirms this vision. Also on that, uh, when that country, Greece and Alexander the Great died, it was apparently partitioned into four parts. Well, would you like to explain that one for us? Perhaps depicted by the four heads on the... Uh, on the uh body of this animal, the leopard. Um, we know that history teaches us that uh, at the death of Alexander the Great, the kingdom was, um, the empire was spread out or uh, divided among four generals. Uh, the generals we know from history are Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. So again we see the Bible was right and what Daniel had seen in his vision a long, long time before it happened. Now we move on to the last beast. 
Yeah, and would you like to explain this one to us? Yes, it's it's absolutely fascinating uh, to see this uh, uh, these four beasts. It, it, it seems to me that Daniel was probably the most interested in those fourth one. And, and he's spending much more time to describe the activity of these beasts. I would like to read again this verse 7. And that, in my vision at night, I looked at there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled uh, underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. So it's interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's even, w we can identify the fir first three. But, but, but the fourth one, uh, Daniel has a problem with, uh, with identification of it. It's, uh, and so he's using more adjectives, uh, fearful, uh, ferocious, uh, frightening, powerful. And of course, this, again, the, the, the devouring character of this beast here uh, is uh, introduced. And particular, Daniel is interesting in those horns. Uh, and and especially there are some movement in those horns which which brings us to the climax of uh, of this chapter and i think it was very interesting for daniel he's he's passionate he's he's horrified with uh, with his movement on on the head of these four beasts because uh, we can we we learn from the text that you know, the uh, uh, some of those horns are plucked out uh, there is a horn who who take the position of the central position of on the head of this uh, uh, beast and 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 we we know a little bit about this uh, little horn who is saying uh, uh, strange words blasphemies uh, who has the power who who speaks in behalf of uh, uh, of some uh, uh, powers which we can see daniel was fascinating with that and this brings us as i said to the climax what is it, it, what's happened here uh, in this chapter? Why this movement on the head of the fourth beast is so important? It's very interesting that the Protestant reformers and many Bible scholars have since identified this little horn, power or ruler, as the Roman Catholic papacy hierarchy. What led them to this conclusion, panel? That's a very good question, uh, Ken, and... Uh traveling around Europe where uh, a lot of the things happened during the Reformation time. Actually, I visited uh, Nuremberg and uh, on the walls of the council there are depicted these phases of uh, Daniel chapter 7. And you'll see all those in plaques there on the facade of the building with all the beasts because the reformers understood the connection of the spiritual power in our times. And uh, while you mention about there the terrible beast which uh, Daniel saw and he was terrified about that, because that not only represented a power in history which he understood from Daniel 2, which was during the Roman Empire, the pagan uh, Rome, but also it was followed by a spiritual power during the same reign. And this is, I think, very important and interesting how the reformers understood and uh, the Bible confirms that and history confirms that too. Lynn? I think we should remember 
that the beast represents a major power, but a horn also represents a power. And in the uh, Roman Empire, as you mentioned before, Ken, there were various divisions. It's interesting how that some of those divisions disappeared, just like a baby or a, a child loses its baby teeth and another tooth comes up in place. Well, this happened with the horns, that three of those powers disappeared. But we must remember that a horn is a power, and the little one, which will get most of our attention now, was a different kind of power. And I think when we look at the history, uh, early medieval history, uh, after the uh, Roman Empire uh, collapsed, uh, there is a continuation. There is no vacuum. There are other powers who are taking over the, the political ground, uh, geographical ground, and we can see that those horns are a continuation of, of this uh, imperial politics of, uh, uh, of Roman Empire. And this particular little horn is predominant and, and it's doing something very uh, uh, special things. Helen? I think it's interesting to note that um, we now have actually a very definite time, uh, a time frame for the rise of this power. The Heruli, the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, they were limited by what year? Eliminated, the year 538 AD. Yes, the Heruli were overthrown in AD 493, the Vandals in 534, and the Ostrogoths in AD 538. There is one common thing for those three. They were all Arians. And you know that church was very sensitive for this heresy. And all they, uh, those three uh, powers, uh, on top of these political influences which they have, they also represent a different religion, which were considered by the main church as a heresy. And therefore, they were eliminated. And I agree with yes. you that date 538 mm -hmm. is, uh, is giving us this momentum when this power of the little horn become a sole power uh, on the territory on the former Roman Empire. So it was to arise between the year 476 AD and 538 AD. You know, it, from the time that the little horn made its appearance and there was the subdivisions and what have you, to the time of the elimination, if you like, of these other powers, that's the gap, that's that's the time frame. Would you agree? Yes, but yeah. but, but be sure that in history, very, it's very difficult to pinpoint. It's like the, when the decline of the Roman Empire is a little process. It's it's just smooth uh, transition, um, and and we have seen this in this vision uh, which Daniel had in chapter seven. But we also see that in history, mm -hmm. what actually happened mm -hmm. in history as well. But what I would like yes. to to point out here now, because we need to move a little <coughs> bit further into the the second part of chapter 7 and will identify uh, some of the things uh, prophetically there because that's why prophecy is given to us to identify. There are some identifying marks and I think they're very very important. Um, we're told it had like eyes like the eyes of a man it spoke pompous words or arrogant words against the Most High, and we know the Most High is God. It persecuted the saints of the Most High. It sought to change times and laws, and it oppressed the saints for 1260 years. And I think we all know that that was termed as the Dark Ages. 
While these events are accumulating on the earth, others are transpiring in heaven. A great judgment scene is before us. Len, would you like to explain this one for us? Well, I'd like to read Daniel 7, verses 9 through to 12. And it says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So there's a shift in the scene. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. So this is a different a, a different scene altogether than what we've been talking about before. It's a heavenly scene. Then I continue to watch. Because of the boastful words, the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So here is a scene of judgment both in investigating and in carrying out the judgment. Mm. Nick? And just if I could mention here that we're now starting to see the influence of the spiritual power coming in place. Before, we learn about judgments about the kings of some of the empires, judgment about Belshazzar, judgment about uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and so on and so forth. But now, this power, it's a spiritual power, which takes on board some of the attributes which only God was supposed to perform. And if you look into that in the Old Testament, uh, during the, the time of Israel and the tabernacle, which God gave to them as a sign of his presence among them, and how the judgment was, uh, if you like, uh, performed in the olden days with Israel, you know that just to mention now the the um, once a year when the high, high priest went into the most holy place, that was a, sort of a kind of judgment. This power now, it's exercising the role of God. And this is probably we need to now put together the dots here and to understand why this was so terrifying for Daniel when he saw this power and what was about to do. Lynn? Daniel saw and was horrified by the activities of this fourth beast and the little horn power that arose from the fourth beast, the Roman Empire, and I would like to add the Holy Roman Empire, which was more than just a political empire, it was political and religious. However, these verses which I just read are showing the theme that was presented earlier in the book of Daniel that God is sovereign, although this power exercises a great deal of influence over the peoples of the earth. God has the ultimate say. It's also interesting, if I can add this, uh, the structure of uh, chapter 7. Now we are in the, uh, in, in the climax of chapter 7, which is judgment. All things which we talked uh, till now, it's just like an introduction to this scene of judgment in heaven. 
And it's interesting to see that uh, 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 that this judgment of God take place in favor of his saints. And, and the kingdom is given to the saints. We will talk about that. But it's interesting to see this pyramidal structure. Uh, uh, the dream, the four beasts and, and the horns, judgment, and then again uh, the horns and, uh, and uh, the chapter 7 is uh, finished with interpretation of, of this. Yeah, I think it's interesting too. We we look back at Daniel two, and we're looking, you know, doing a parallel there. But when you look forward in Revelation, there is also a parallel when it comes to the judgment. Mm, that's true. Panel, who yes. who is the ancient of days, and what is going on here? Who is the ancient of days? I believe that is indeed God. And we were talking then a minute ago about the judgment when it come. I watched the thrones were put in place, and the ancient one, or the ancient of days. Uh, sat down to judge. That, judge that, who? Well, we can have to look at the text, and the text is telling us what's happening here. And I'm reading verse number 11. Then I continue to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. It's interesting to see the difference between what happened with those first three beasts. They are uh, they are stripped of their authority or power, and and they the Bible is telling us, but they are allowed to live for a period of time. But the four beasts is slain, and is and there is a death sentence for this beast. So who is the subject of the judgment? The beast. And the little horn. And that's a very interesting uh, thing here, uh, historically, uh, because then uh, Daniel is introducing this concept of the holy people, the, the saints, that the, 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 the judgment is in favor of his saints. That's the rescue action. It's destroying the foes of those enemies of the God's people. And finally, uh, as we will see, uh, as we will, uh, as we saw in, in uh, chapter two, the kingdom uh, who will never be uh, removed uh, will start uh, its existence. Well, you're going to read Daniel chapter seven for us. Yes, Daniel chapter seven from verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Panelled. Who is the Son of Man, and what glory, kingdom, nations are we talking about here? Well, Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man, so this is really talking about Jesus. It's interesting also to see that Jesus very often was referring to him as the Son of Man, only in the Gospel of Luke, 27 times. Jesus is addressing this or claiming this uh, uh, title to himself. So we can see that uh, that this revelation of the Son of Man is progressive. And Jesus didn't start from the beginning talking about the Son of Man. He's giving this information to his disciples progressively as he was coming to the cross. 
But he also used it in Matthew as well as mm. as well as Luke and in, in John. And in John, mm-hmm. yeah. But what I was going to say can uh, hear about this is that we identify now that before the throne comes the Son of Man, and the judgment is in place there. Now the little horn here, we were just talking so much, is taking on on board their attributes of responsibility, speaking pompous words against the Most High. And we know here that the little horn was identified as the Roman uh, papacy, and uh, they put in place several doctrines and practices which are contrary to the Bible, like purgatory, auricular confession, and change of the Sabbath commandment to Sunday are among many other changes of the times and law introduced by the papacy. And that's, that's one of the things that this power, this little horn, is taking away the role and the attributes of the Lamb, the Son of Man, which is depicted here in Revelation 7 from verse 13 onwards. This parallel we need to kind of now understand and not to be deceived by the activity of the little horn from a spiritual point of view. Hmm. Panel, is the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds to the Ancient of Days a description of the return of Jesus to earth or an event that precedes it? Well, some people like to think that it may refer to the change in Jesus' role in heaven where he uh, changes his role from mediatorial to judgment to where the judgment ends and then Jesus shifts, if you like, uh, to the most holy place. But immediately following that, and I realise there is a little bit of dissension about this, immediately following that, judgment is completed, then Jesus can come. But he can't come until the judgment is completed. I mean, that was what I was going to say here. He's talking about the judgment. And uh, even though, if you look just uh, into Daniel uh, 7, you the first imagery, you know, you'll, you'll have, okay, the second coming of Jesus, uh, coming on the clouds of heaven. But Jesus cannot come on the clouds of heaven before the judgment is, uh, is finished. I mean, what to come for? You know, you need the judgment to have finished. And I believe here is the parallel that Jesus had a role to play in the heavenly sanctuary. And uh, even though the um, words like clouds of heaven are mentioned here, I mentioned earlier that when the high priest entered into the most holy place, into the tabernacle on this earth, it was surrounded by a cloud of incense, which means that now that gives us enough information here that Jesus refers now that horizontal movement in the heaven to to accomplish the the judgment and then he will come. Now probably we need to come on a different Bible study Mm. for this to elaborate a little bit more and to explain a little bit more, not to be confused about the second coming and the attributes and role of the Son of Man in heaven. Absolutely. Because, mind you, that when we look at chapter 2, how chapter 2, how the vision in chapter 2 end up? That's the second coming. That's the beginning of the kingdom who will never be moved. That's 
And that's a very important thing. You, we, we have to remember that those visions are in the very big scale. They are not in detail scale. It's a big picture. So when we are here, uh, uh, when we are told that this beast and little horn are annihilated and, uh, and, and, and thrown into the blazing fire, when it is, that's the big scale, that's the second coming, that's, that's the, the last phase of judgment. And I, Nick, I agree, I think it's necessary one day to meet together and talk about, uh, uh, and talk about uh, the judgment and talk about who is the subject of the judgment. Mm -hmm. But in this context of chapter 7, there are two main things. The judgment is against the little horn. And the second one, it is for the saints. You see, very often people are scared about talking about judgment. Judgment is the good news. Judgment is about the rescue. Judg judgment is about salvation. We have the whole book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, called Book of Judges. What this book is about is about salvation, which is brought to people who temporarily left God and go astray. Will, would you like to uh, read Daniel chapter 7 for us? 21, 22 and verse 27. Daniel 7 verses 21 and 22. I behold, and the same horn w made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. I'd like to ver read verse 27 as well. Mm -hmm. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Panel, what, what does this mean for God's people? I think it's a good news. Mm. I think that judgment, the, the purpose of the judgment in the Bible is not to keep people out of heaven, but to get as many as possible. And therefore we are here today living in this hour of judgment where we invite people, come, confess your sins, come to, to, to the Savior, come to your um, mediator, confess your sins and be reconciled with God. Just a quick comment. This is the fourth time I've read through the book of Daniel. Daniel 2, Daniel 7 mentions it three times. That the kingdom that God sets up will be an everlasting kingdom, mm. whereas all the others had a beginning and an end. This has a beginning, but no end. So obviously God's people are going to inherit the new earth. Panel, does this revelation give us hope for the difficult days ahead? God's intercession or God's intruding into history is, uh, is good news for anyone because behind all of uh, the play and counterplay of human affairs, we know that God ultimately sets up not only judgment but a glorious end for those that love him. When I think about all this, what we're discussing now, to me it brings back the great controversy that happened in, in heaven. You know, when you read out or when we read out about they spoke pompous words against the Most High, what was Satan doing back there as Lucifer? He said, I will be like the Most High. So we have to remember who's behind all 
these things that are happening in this world. But on the other side of the coin, we have got we, we've got here in 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 Daniel. We can see God at work, and God, as Len said, God is sovereign, and that helps us through the difficult times in our life to know that God knows the end from the beginning. And um, just before we finish, I will—I'd like to read out a text with that. But Nick, you've got something you want to say? I was just going to say, in a, in, I know we're running out of time now, but one clear understanding for us all here, living on on Earth in these days, is that religious power has a very important role to play and a lot of things are now kind of interconnected with the religious power but unfortunately that religious power it's a corrupt religious power it's an apostate religion and doesn't represent the living god and when in the bible talks about here that the vindication of the saints of the most high is not talking about everyone here who believe who they will say that there is a god because even the demons will say there is god and believe but are they doing the right thing and here probably is the the ultimate thing from from this chapter that we are dealing with a counterpart mm-hmm. which they are deceiving pretending that they are leading people to god they are deceiving people and you mentioned earlier, uh, Jan, about um, one of the kings there. He was more involved with the religious... Uh, that was Nabonidus, the, Nab- Babylon, the, Nab- the Babylonian king. Or the Babylonian. We can see today that almost nothing happens in the political side if it's not consulted, if you like, with the religious power at some level. And it's important to have this uh, insight, political insight, but Ken, answering your question, how we today, uh, how we deal with this message, I think it's a wonderful message because, you see, John, uh, a gospel of John uh, 5.22 uh, says that for the father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the son. And Jesus is not only our savior, he's also our judge. And he knows us. And I think that chapter 7 is bringing us this message that don't speculate on political powers. Who will win? Who will know? We, we know who will win at the end. But our hope and our joy is in Jesus, who is the judge, who is the savior, who is the son of man. And I think as, as Daniel, we are also appalled and, and sick uh, when we are uh, uh, and, and, and suffer with God's people uh, in order to gain insight into heaven's answer and solution. We don't have solutions, but God has solutions for us. And I think I would like to emphasize that chapter 7 is absolutely chapter of hope and chapter of trusting in the main character of this uh, uh, history, which is a son of man, Jesus Christ. Well, panel... We all know many times we all face unpleasant and hard things in our lives, many of which we don't understand. Is there another scripture that can help us to face such things? Helen, have you got something for us? I was alluding to that a little earlier. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, 
it says here, um, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, everything is going to go 100% how we want it. Mm. You know, it says clearly there we know that all things work together for good, and yet if we look at our lives, we know there are things that don't appear to be working together for good. But I believe it means that those who love God, if it has been the wrong pathway down or whatever, God can turn it around for his purposes of good. And God only wants good for us, does he not? And, and of course, it says it's together for good to those who love God. So if there are any listeners out there that haven't got to the point of loving God, please take time to go to the foot of the cross. Take time to study and to pray because you can rest on that promise if you love God, we know all things will work together for good. That is good news. Well, listeners, we've come to the end of our time again today. It goes so quickly. We do hope you have enjoyed the words you've heard today and make some sense of them and get your Bibles out and check them out. And we're just going to end now with a prayer from Jan. Our Heavenly Father, we would like to say thank you so much for this time of study and, and exploring this fascinating text in the book of Daniel. Lord, thank you that in, in this turmoil and, and uh, time of ferocity and, uh, and these beastly behaviors today, we can have trust in you. We can look at you and, and, and we can see that you are in control. Lord, as, as, we, as we anticipate the, the next chapter, chapter 8 and 9, where we, will have, where we have more information about that, Lord, thank you for your revelation. Thank you for this amazing book, which are telling us and showing us your character and your nature. Thank you that we can rely on you and we glorify your name because you are the King of Kings, the Son of Man, Heavenly Father the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you very much, everyone, for uh, your participation and uh, this uh, very exciting uh, discussion uh, here today. Thank you very much for uh, listening today. May God bless you. And don't forget, keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.